This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We began a new series last Sunday on the Gospel of Mark. So we are going to be walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And the goal in this series is just for our hearts to be captivated by the person of Christ. That we might understand in a deeper way than ever before what His love for us means and that we might be transformed by His love as we see the person of Jesus in this gospel. So last week, uh, we looked at the first eight verses, the introduction of Mark's gospel, and today we're talking about the baptism and temptation of Jesus. What, what truths do we see in his baptism and in the temptation which immediately followed his baptism. So let's look together at verses 9 through 13 of Mark chapter 1, and if you'll follow along. The Bible says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, we pray that... As we study this text today, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it and be gripped by it and apply it. We pray that Christ would be lifted up, that we would see a new dimension today of his incredible love for us and be captivated and transformed by that. And we pray it in his name. Amen. On November 19, 1863, President Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, one of the most famous speeches in American history. The day before, as he went up to Pennsylvania from D.C. on the train, the president told his advisors that he felt dizzy. And by the time he actually delivered the speech the next day, one of his aides said that the president's color in his face was ghastly, and that he looked haggard and sad and mournful. What they didn't know at the time was that Lincoln actually had a slight case of smallpox, and he was very ill. But despite his weakness, Lincoln delivered an address that we still remember to this day. The Gettysburg Address lasted about two minutes. It was 272 words. And by contrast, the main speaker of the day, a man named Edward Everett, spoke for 
two hours. And his speech was 13,607 words. But nobody remembers what Edward Everett said. And later on, he wrote to President Lincoln and he said this, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. In the Greek New Testament, Mark's account of Jesus' baptism is 53 words. But he packs it with life-changing truth. So what can we learn from the baptism and temptation of Jesus? The first thing is this. Jesus identifies with those he came to save. In verse 9... Mark tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, an obvious question to ask when we come to the baptism of Jesus is this. Why was Jesus baptized? Because we're baptized after we repent of our sins. But, of course, Jesus had no sins to repent of. So why is he baptized? Well, certainly Jesus wants to show support for the ministry of John the Baptist, but there's something even deeper. Jesus, in being baptized, even though he had no sin, is identifying himself with us. He is identifying himself with sinners. He's identifying himself with those that he comes to save. He saves us, not by standing apart from us, but by coming to us. Now, this is what the incarnation is all about. This is why God became man. This is why Jesus left the glory of heaven to be born as a baby and to live out a life as a man because God saves us, not by standing apart, remote from us, but He comes to us to rescue us. You know, Lottie Moon is a great example of this type of incarnational ministry. Lottie was raised in a very affluent, aristocratic family here in Virginia. In fact, she was the first woman in the South to earn a master's degree. So she was very cultured, very sophisticated. And when she first went to China, even though... She loved Jesus, and obviously she loved these people enough to go to China as a missionary, as a single woman, which was unheard of at the time. But she looked da- at first she looked down on the Chinese. She, she considered their ways and their culture just to be so backward that she almost had sort of a snobby view of them. But then God did something in her heart. And Lottie moved to the interior of the country and she began to learn their language. And then she did things that other missionaries just were not doing in the 19th century. She began to dress like the Chinese. (laughs) She began to adopt many of the, the cultural customs of the Chinese. She was she was doing life with those that she had come to share the gospel with. And she would tell missionaries things like this. She said, we need to go out and live among them 
manifesting the gentle and loving spirit of our Lord. You know, the Bible says of Jesus in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Jesus saves us not by standing apart from us, but by coming to us. And, and by being baptized, Jesus is identifying himself with those that he has come to save. You know, if we're going to, to see people come to Christ, we can't stand apart from them either. We have to go to them. And that means that often we need to, times we need to get out of our Christian comfort zone and we need to spend time with people who don't yet know our Lord. And, you know, get out of kind of just our comfortable circles. We, we know that we're very comfortable being around Christians, but if we spend all of our time around other Christians, then we're not going to see evangelistic fruit come from our lives. You know, we have to love people enough to, 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 to want to be with them if they're going to come to know our Savior. So Jesus here identifies himself with those that he's come to, to win. We see another truth here in this passage, and that is we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Do you see it in verses 9 through 11? It says that when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, the Father, You are my beloved Son. Do you see the three persons of the Trinity working together and the interplay between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? C.S. Lewis compared the, 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 the inner workings of the three members of the Trinity and the way they relate to one another as sort of like a divine dance. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga says this about the Trinity. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. And so we see a model for the way that we should treat other people in the way that the three persons of the Trinity treat one another, their love for one another. And we see that here in Jesus' baptism. And we see something else. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the fact that the coming of Jesus was like the beginning of a new creation. How did Mark... Begin this gospel. The, the very first word of Mark 1.1 is the word beginning in Greek. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What Mark is doing is he is saying that with the coming of Jesus, that God is beginning a new creation. So Mark, in the very first verse of his gospel, he is going back to the first verse of the Bible, to Genesis 1-1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that creation, which, God, which was perfect, has now been marred 
by sin. And what Mark is telling us is that with the coming of Jesus Christ, God is, is making a new creation. Now one day, that new creation is going to be consummated and the world's going to be perfect again. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth when Christ comes again. But that, create, that new creation, which will one day be consummated when Christ returns, has already been inaugurated. The first coming of Christ was the inauguration of a new creation. God is doing something new. There's a new beginning for the world with the coming of, of Christ. Now, in, in Genesis 1-2, the very next verse, what do we see? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Hebrew... That word hovering, it means to flutter like a bird. So in Genesis 1-2, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God was fluttering like a bird over the face of the waters. Now what's happening at the baptism of Jesus? The Spirit is once again fluttering like a dove over the face of the waters. What is God telling us? New creation. New creation has begun in Christ. And all three members of the Trinity, just as all three members of the Trinity were involved in the first creation, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the new creation. Tim Keller says this, There are three parties active in the creation of the world. God, God's Spirit, and God's Word through which He creates. The same three parties are present at Jesus' baptism. The Father, who is the voice, the Son, who is the Word, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove. Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation, to the very beginning of history, just as the original creation of the world was a product, a project of the triune God. Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of the King is also a project of the triune God. So we see a beautiful picture here of the Trinity in creation and new creation. Third, we see here the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 10 says, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, Mark could have simply said that the heavens were opened. But he's using a different Greek word here. He's using the word for torn. That when Jesus came up out of the water, that the heavens were torn open. Last week, we saw that at, at the beginning of this gospel, Mark quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Well, in Isaiah, the last great prayer that Isaiah prays in chapter 64 is this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens, and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. See, Isaiah's prayer is being answered in the coming of Christ 
Isaiah prays, God, would you tear open the heavens and come down? And now Jesus has come. As he comes up out of the water, Mark tells us that the heavens were torn open. This is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. You know, instead of all hell breaking loose on earth, this is all heaven breaking loose on earth with the coming of Jesus. That's what revival is, by the way. You know, revival is not a series of meetings that you schedule. Revival is all heaven breaking loose. Revival is God rending the heavens and coming down. It's a great book that I commend to you. This is called A God-Sized Vision by Colin Hansen and John Woodbridge. And it's stories of when God did this very thing. When, when, when all heaven broke loose, when, when, uh, when God rended the heavens and came down. This is very important for us to understand. We should, we should yearn for revival. We should pray for revival. And we should understand that our ultimate need is for God to manifest himself. And especially in this political season in our own country, as important as those things are, and yes, we want to be good citizens and we want to vote and we want to be involved, but we need to understand that ultimately what our nation needs is revival. We need the heavens to be torn open and God to come down, beginning with each one of us. Now we see that word torn somewhere else in the Gospel of Mark, don't we? And we looked at it last week. It's at toward the end as Jesus is being crucified. It says in chapter 15, beginning in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As Jesus is expiring on the cross, the, the curtain that surrounds the holy, holy, holy of Holies and the innermost part of the temple in Jerusalem is split in half, torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was where the presence of God was. And there was a sense of hiddenness about it. But, but, but with the tearing of that curtain, the message is that God is no longer hidden. No, he is seen in the person of Jesus. And his spirit is, is unleashed. It is being poured out in the world with the coming of, of Christ. And so we see here the, the fulfillment of prophecy. The next thing that we see is, is the voice of assurance in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. Now we see the deep, deep love that God the Father has for God the Son. You know, as, as parents, these are words that we need to speak to our own children. And I know it's, it's vital that we show them our love, but it's also vital that we speak words of love to our children. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And parents, your, your children need to hear these words of blessing from you. They, they need to hear your love for them in, in words. And the Father speaks these words of love 
over the Son at this point. But just imagine what's going on in the Father's heart as He speaks these words. Because the Father knows what is awaiting His Son. He knows the cross lies ahead of Him. I'm always struck every time I read Genesis 22 and the the story of Abraham and Isaac when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And in Genesis 22, it just brings out the heaviness that was in Abraham's heart because he had such a deep love for Isaac. In Genesis 22, too, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, you you know the end of the story. You know that Abraham did not have to sacrifice Isaac because he held a knife. The knife was getting ready to come down on his son and God said, Stop! And Abraham looked over and there was this ram caught by its horns down in the thicket. And God told him to sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac in Isaac's place. And of course, we know that what that was pointing to. We, we know that ultimately Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son because God was going to sacrifice his son. That ram that was caught by its horns was pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb caught by its horns was pointing to the lamb that was going to catch all of our sins upon himself and bear them to the cross. And so the Father the Father, as He speaks these words of love, knows what lies ahead for His Son. And the Bible tells us that if we are in Christ, that we have been adopted as children of God. That we are sons and daughters of the King. And that means that these very words that God speaks over Jesus, He speaks over you as a child of God. God speaks over you as a Christian. And he says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Because when he looks at you, he sees Christ. You are united to Christ by faith. And so God loves you the way that he loves his son. It's just amazing to contemplate. N.T. Wright says this, The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in, in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us, not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. Now when we understand this, it fills us, with joy. It fills us with assurance. It fills us with peace. It fills us with confidence. 
And it enables us to endure the tests, the trials, the suffering that comes our way in life. That's what we see next, the test, the test. Verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So, after the Exodus... What do the children of Israel do? When they leave Egypt, what happens? They, they, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And then they go out into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. And then he enters the wilderness for 40 days. But unlike Israel, which did not believe God and, and sinned in the wilderness, Jesus is going to pass this test. And isn't it interesting that verse 12 tells us that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. This was part of God's plan. Sometimes when we go through painful trials, well-meaning people may try to comfort us by saying, you know, God had nothing to do with this. What you're going through right now, God had nothing to do with it. And I know that they mean well, and I know that they, they're trying to comfort us, and they're sort of trying to get God off the hook so that he doesn't get blamed for what, what's happened. But, but that advice is not a lot of comfort, and it's not biblical. Listen, when we're suffering, we need to know that God is totally in control of what's going on. I mean, when I'm suffering, I, want to, I don't want somebody to tell me God had nothing to do with this. I, I want to know that God had everything to do with it. That God, that God has a purpose, a good purpose in allowing this to happen. And that He's in control and that He's, he's, he's ordained it and allowed it for a, a good purpose in my life. That he's, he's at work for good. And He is. He is. God is sovereign. In our trials, God is, God is in control. God is at work for His glory and for our good. Romans 8.28 says He's causing all things, even our trials and our suffering, to work together for good to those who love Him. And so the Spirit of God drives Jesus out into the, the wilderness where Jesus is tested, where Jesus suffers. Now, Mark is written to suffering people. It will help you in, in understanding this gospel if you understand that it is written to Christians who are suffering for their faith. Mark was written in the city of Rome. What was happening in Rome in the late 50s and early to mid 60s AD? There was terrible persecution. Of Christians. And the persecution of Christians in Rome reached its zenith after the great fire of Rome, which took place 
in 64 AD. Many scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written in the immediate aftermath of the fire of Rome in 64. Now, that fire, which wiped out most of the city of Rome, was in all likelihood intentionally set by the emperor, an evil man named Nero, as part of an urban renewal scheme that he wanted to do. So he wanted to burn the city so that he could build his own project in its place. Well, in the immediate aftermath of the fire, word starts to circulate among the people in Rome that the emperor had set the fire. And so Nero knows that this rumor is going around, and so he has to find a scapegoat. And he finds a convenient scapegoat in a, a despised, small, persecuted group of people called Christians. And the Roman historian and senator Tacitus tells us some of the things that happened in that persecution. He says this, Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost cruelty a class whom the crowd styled Christians. Accordingly, arrest was made of those who confessed to being Christians. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted. Every sort of derision was added to their deaths. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts and dismembered by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Others, when daylight failed, were set afire and served as lamps by night. This type of thing sounds very much like what we're hearing these days from the Middle East and territories that have, that have come under the rule of ISIS. And as we worship in comfort and security week by week, let's remember our brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering and that are being killed all over the world because of their faith in Christ. But look, Mark is written to people who are experiencing these kinds of things. They're seeing these kinds of things. They may have seen brothers and sisters in Christ thrown to wild beasts in the arena. What would it mean to persecuted believers like that to hear a statement like this in verse 13. It says that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and angels were ministering to him. Why does Mark add that Jesus was with the wild animals. It's, it's, not in, it's a detail that's not in other Gospels. It's probably because he knows that he's writing to people who have seen loved ones thrown to wild beasts. And what would it have meant to persecuted believers to hear? You know what, Jesus... Jesus was with the wild beast, but God never left him. Angels were ministering to him. That, that word ministering is in the imperfect tense. It means that they were with Jesus throughout this time in the wilderness. 
They, they never left him. God, God, God was by his side every moment. What would it have meant to these persecuted believers to hear, you know what, Christ, Christ has walked this road before me. You know, Christ has suffered. God never left him. Mark is saying, he's not going to leave you either. He's saying that the one who was not only with the wild beast in the wilderness, but, but the one who eventually was going to be torn apart on the cross, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he's been there. You remember that in your trials. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence that is with us always. We thank you that you loved us so much that you came to us. That you didn't, you weren't distant from us. That you, you came to us to rescue us by taking all of our sins upon yourself. By allowing yourself to be torn apart as you bore our sins. That you caught up all of our sins in yourself and died as a sacrifice in our place. And we thank you for the new creation that you are bringing about. We thank you that a new beginning has begun in Jesus and that that we can experience that new beginning, that, that we can be new creations in Christ, that we can be adopted as your beloved sons and daughters. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about just knowing Him more and and, and more about what the gospel means, if you're saying, I want to give my life to to Christ or I want to know more about Him, we're going to be here to to minister to to you uh, during this time of invitation and, and afterwards as well. If you're hearing God speaking to you about being a part of our church family, uh, we would love to, to, to welcome you as you come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father. You are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.